Good morning, Mosaic. I'm Becky. I'm part of the teaching team here, and I'm hearing little whisperings and rumors that maybe we'll start getting to see one another in person again, so I feel a little bit of extra excitement this morning in anticipation of that. Um, I want to talk to you today about the goodness of God. There is an expression that I grew up hearing in the church, and it's one of those, our church wasn't super high church with a lot of um, uh, recited readings or anything like that, but I would often hear this phrase, and I learned to participate in this give and take, where someone would say from the front, God is good, and we sitting in the congregation would say, all the time, and then the leader would say, all the time, and then we would say, God is good. And I kind of grew up <laughs> just being proud I caught on and I knew what to say, I knew the right thing to say. But I think one of the reasons that I um, gravitated toward being an Old Testament scholar is because there was something about that phrase that while I believe it, I really do, don't turn off your church service because you think I'm gonna be heretical, but it sometimes seems to fall short. It seems really simple. Um, Either it doesn't feel like he's good in the present moment. I know right now there's so many things going on in the world and in my world immediately. I have friends who are suffering deeply and it burdens me and um, you know, politics, <laughs> that's its whole thing. And um, gosh, even just being a mom at this time and trying to work and make sure our kids are okay. The other day, the high of my daughter's day was that she said hi to someone on a walk and they smiled back and they had no mask. And she talked about that all weekend long and my heart just broke. That doesn't feel like I'm living in a time that's just blossoming with the goodness of God. Um, you might also be struggling because he doesn't sound good. I mean, I'm an Old Testament prof. I get all the questions. You know, what, how do we, what, what's this thing with God and women? He doesn't seem to like them very much. Or how do you serve a God that's jealous or that kills people? Randomly sometimes it seems. And so what I want to talk to you about today is the fact that those, though, though those words fall short sometimes, uh, the character of God doesn't. And in diving into the study of God's goodness in the, well, in all of scripture, but especially the Old Testament, I've come to know a God who is way bigger than this, way bigger. And I've learned that my definition of good is far too small. And God has a lot more about him that he invites us to explore, even if we might not ever fully understand it this side of heaven. So today I want to share with you three truths about the goodness of God that help us explore the depth of what his goodness actually means. The first one is that God's goodness is far greater than we think. Now by that, I might mean something a little different than you might expect. Um, I'm not just talking about his good stuff being gooder. It's not just in quality that it's better and outrageously more than we can expect. I'm talking about the fact that it includes more elements than we might be inclined to call good. One of the things that it includes, for example, is the righting of wrongs. Now, when we hear that, we're like, good, I want the wrongs to be righted. 
but I'm not sure we always understand what is associated with that. Let me, let me give you an example. I'm gonna read from Exodus 34. I do this little experiment in my class with the students, so I'm not gonna make you do it. You're lucky, because I make my students do it, but I can't see you, so. I give them like a, pick a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and I'm gonna read you the attributes of God as he self-defines. And you're gonna kind of mentally give a good thing, bad thing, thumb in, in your mind. And I think you'll be a little surprised if it works. Um, I'm t reading from Exodus 34, six. This is where God is revealing himself to Moses. And he passes in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, we like that one too, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, I'm still at a thumbs up, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yea, I want a forgiving God. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I'm gonna stop there. That's the time when it becomes a little bit trickier for me, and I'm kinda like, ooh, he's gonna judge. That's, why does he have to punish? That doesn't seem right. Now, it's always funny to watch the reactions in the class between the thumbs up and the thumbs down, or the wavering ones, and it usually has a lot to do with their personal experience. If they have been wronged, often they know what it's like to, to long for justice, for vindication. And all through the scriptures, God offers that as a promise to his people. I'm not just going to bless you. Even in Genesis 12, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'll take care of you even in the face of your enemies. And that, that part, I mean, it might have been really easy for you to put your thumbs up on that one, but that part of God's goodness is a little bit harder for us to wrap our heads around. Um, God's goodness having a, let's call it a bite to it, sort of a dangerous side, isn't just in the Old Testament, in Revelation, and when the seventh trumpet sounds, you hear people asking like, how, how long, Lord, till you go and destroy those who've destroyed the world? And um, so don't think this is, this is something that encompasses all of scripture. We need to allow that God's goodness is far greater than we think. The second point sort of links with that one, but go with me here. God's goodness is inseparable from his judgment or his discipline. You know, when I first started teaching my first semester, um, I was teaching through the prophets and I tried to, in my mind, do this little experiment as I taught and I sort of wanted to separate the verses about blessings, because there was tons of those, from the verses about judgment. Um, because, you know, in my head I was still doing this good thing, bad thing. And what I found was you absolutely cannot separate the two. They are two sides of the same coin. Um, somehow, we need to understand that it isn't just, what is good isn't just what we define as feeling good to us, but what is good is about what is right and what God defines as good, which includes judgment and discipline. 
Now, I'm not necessarily talking about suffering so much. Don't lump these all in together. Some people feel like anytime something bad happens to them, maybe God's disciplining them. Don't get that confused in here. We'll talk about suffering a little bit more in just a minute. But what I want us to understand is that God's judgment is purposeful. And um, I'm gonna read you a section of scripture in a minute that I love, but um, as I was talking it through with Tim, he reminded me that it needs just a little bit more context. Because what looks so clear to me um, is only clear because there's something else I've already wrestled with. And that is that God is so big so glorious, all the things that Tim described last week in the sermon, just majestic and beyond our comprehension. And the other thing that the text tells us is, not only is he big, sovereign, glorious, way bigger than we can see or imagine, but he actually wins this thing in the end, this thing called life where everything looks like it's a mess and it doesn't always feel like it's very good, those things I was talking about earlier in our own personal lives. Um, he. He is in control of those situations and he wins. So while we're defining good sometimes as what feels immediately beneficial for us, God has a far greater vantage point and he knows what's gonna be beneficial for us ultimately. And that is, sorry to say it, to not cross him. <laughs> I'm sorry, fear God more than your circumstances. And when we realize that there is a far greater picture beyond what words can describe, and that we can trust in the goodness of God to orchestrate those things, some of what is said in, uh, in the passage I wanna read to you makes some sense. The passage I'm gonna read to you shocked me because it was the first time I saw explicitly in the text that when God sent judgment, he was doing it out of love, out of his goodness not just to punish, but to restore and to bring his people back to him where he knows they need to be. Uh, in Amos chapter four, verse six, he talks about the punishment that he's given to Israel and the purpose of it to restore them. He says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city, yet you have not returned to me. I withheld rain for you when the harvest was still three months away. I would send rain in one town, but withhold it from another. I'm just reading the beginnings of these. People staggered from town to town for water, but you didn't return to me. Many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards with blight and mildew and locust devours your figs and leaves, olive leaves, yet you did not return to me. I sent plagues to you like I did in Egypt, and I killed your young men with a sword yet you did not return to me. And one of the reasons I love that passage is because it merges the toughest part of God, that bite that he has, that dangerous side that we just are uh, faced with in scripture, and it shows that underneath that, or that its purpose is restoration. Um, I wanna, confess to you that sometimes that's really hard for me to understand. And I think the reason that's hard for me to understand is because we live in a world that's relatively safe. Um, we live in a culture that if we don't see justice the way we have come to expect it, we'll stand up and riot and ask for it because we, we, are, we are privileged 
to different measure, but we are privileged to have justice enacted for us. But if you have experienced culture where there is not justice that you can expect, where the only way anything ever gets done is through bribes or through strength or through um, the sword, then you will know really well what it's like to long for God to exercise discipline and judgment and punishment and his wrath. And when you see those pictures in scripture, recognize that those are part of his goodness. Those are part of his promise. Those are part of his, I will defend you. I will right what has been wronged. The third thing that I want to talk about in terms of the truths of God's goodness is that with God's goodness, the uncomfortable side, um, sometimes calling it the dangerous side of God's goodness, is in the scriptures intentionally answering the question of who is in control. Now, for us in a culture when we're looking or struggling or wrestling God, with God, we're often asking, are you good? Kind of as trite as, do we like you? Um, do we wanna align ourselves with those values? Do we want to serve a God who's jealous or angry or wrathful? And the question in the scriptures is very, very different. Um, in that time, people were asking, and I think this starts to make more sense to us, the closer we get into what I'm calling 2020-21, um, who's running this ship? Like, who's in control of this chaos? Who wins? And when God expresses some of those things that make him not sound very good when you read the scriptures, he is letting his people and even the whole world know that there is nothing and no one that can outmaneuver him. He will take full responsibility for everything that's happening because he's in control of all of it. And um, that's something that I'm not sure I'm gonna understand completely this side of heaven, um, that God's judgment and um, his even claiming to be in charge of things that are just downright awful, just suffering done to his people. I told you a minute ago not to confuse the judgment and the discipline. This time we're just talking about horrible things that happen and look like chaos in this world and don't make any sense if God is supposed to be good. And how we reconcile that with God's sovereignty and basically we're sort of left um, to some extent with a longing in our heart that feels unfulfilled. And the longing is, in our culture, I believe, that we want a God who is kind and good and gracious and only desires what is good for us, which we, decide, we define as comfortable, beneficial, in the moment. And instead, what we're faced with in the text is a God who is all of those things but he is sovereign. We have a God who is, his goodness is immeasurable, immeasurable. But it includes being in absolute control. I have a line here that I want to read. When crisis hits, would you rather a kind and gentle God 
who would never want anything painful to intrude on your life but can't do anything about it? I hope not, because we don't have that one. Or a God who is not just orchestrating but even authoring every detail and is not just infinitely wise and good and patient but also controls the final outcome of everything. And that's the God we serve. Now, one of my fears with all this is it can start feeling really lofty, um, kind of out there. And I wanna take a moment to bring it really down to earth. I notice in all of my classes now that I struggle even sometimes to find the right words, and you probably notice that, and I'm not, I don't apologize for it ahead of time, I'm not apologizing for it now. But one of the reasons that that is part of my reality right now is that my heart is broken, and I am mourning deeply for a friend. And when I mourn, this is how it plays out in my life. A dear colleague, some of you know him, he's preached here before. Um, Two weeks ago, his son was in a terrible accident, um, and he has a head injury, and they've had to remove part of his skull to allow the pressure to decrease, and he's on life support, and he's in a coma. Um, And he's been that way for about two weeks now, and uh, looking forward, there is no real, it's not that there's no hope. There's no assurance of what it's gonna be like going forward. Is this what it's gonna be? Is he gonna wake up? Is he gonna be restored? Is he gonna wake up but still be dependent on feeding tubes? And and watching uh, my friend from a distance, Paul Metzger, uh, walk through this is just painful. And what strikes me is that in the middle of all of this, he's a theology professor and a pastor. And he has to walk into his virtual, because we're online sometimes, classroom every day and tell students about the goodness of God. And the only way that he is able to do that right now is that he understands these deeper principles about God's goodness. He doesn't have the fluffy part anymore, that God is good all the time, amen, yay, it feels great, and if it doesn't adjust something, you're doing it wrong. He understands that God's goodness is far greater than we think, that it's inseparable from his discipline, but I don't think that part is relevant in his life right now, and that in all of the suffering of the world, God has declared himself sovereign. He is over it. Nothing outmaneuvers him. And it's that kind of understanding of God that we, I'm gonna say, it's imperative for us to have if we're gonna walk through crisis in our own lives, uh, like Paul is right now, or in a small way like I am for my friend. How do I come here and tell you about the goodness of God when I don't know if he's gonna show up and look good the way I want him to anytime soon in the life of this father and this son, and the son is also a father. It's imperative for the way we deal with God in circumstances and the way reflect, we reflect God to others, that we understand that the words God is good all the time, all the time God is good fall short, but that we dive into them and let God explain what that means and the depth and what that, the depth of his goodness and what even that goodness includes. 
And when we do that, let me just add this one note. If you don't like what you see, join the crowd. <laughs> Not just me. Uh, the Old Testament is full of books about this, like entire books where authors go, Lord, what were you thinking? How did you do that? How can the world look this way if you are who you say you are? God can handle those kind of challenges, but I would rather you explore the goodness of God with words where words can't even contain it and be um, troubled and bring that trouble to God. He can handle it. Um, I'm gonna close us with a word of prayer, and if you don't mind, I'm gonna pray for my brother Paul, and for Christopher, his son, and their family, and then for all of you, because I'm guessing every one of you right now has not just one story, but a number of stories where you're carrying these burdens, and they don't really align maybe with the simplest form of God's goodness, but I promise you, they align deeply with the um, the character of God as we learn to see how deep that is. Gracious Heavenly Father, I bring my brother Paul Metzger and his wife and his daughter and his son and his son's family before you, and I just ask that you rain incredible mercy down on that family. I ask for healing, I ask for miraculous healing, where his full, um, bodily abilities and mental capabilities are restored to him and he can enjoy more days with his wife and his daughter and all the great world that you have made. But I also ask, whether you do that or don't do that, that you be very, very close to a family that is struggling to reconcile your goodness with what they are experiencing. Thank you for the way they are doing that and the way they um, insist on a theology that is bigger than what we can just describe. And Lord, for the people that are part of our congregation or just listening in, I pray for that same blessing on them, that they might know how deep and how wide your love is, and that they might come to a place where they're willing and able to at least trust your goodness enough to explore it. At least be willing to challenge it and find out just how much is there. Um, Lord, I thank you for Mosaic and a place that we can speak truth and not fluffy truth. And I praise you, God, that you are good all the time. All the time you are good. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>